Hi, everyone. Welcome to the April 5th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm Patty Calhoun in place for Dominic DiZutti. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to be attempting to moderate this group of political pundits, journalists, and John Caldera, so heaven help me. (laughs) Let's get a quick take on Senator Michael Bennett announcing on Wednesday that he has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. The Colorado Democrat has been considering a 2020 presidential run, and he said that he will officially enter the race if he is cancer-free after a surgery in Denver later this month. Natasha Gardner, in my seat, bringing unusual wisdom to it. (laughs) Articles Editor of 5280, what do you think about Michael Bennett's announcement? Well, I think first and foremost, I wish him the best with his procedure. I hope it's safe. I hope he has a speedy recovery, and I hope he gets a clean bill of health as soon as possible. Um, What I think is interesting is that he does have a different take on politics right now, and he has an insider view on what's been going wrong in Washington. So if he does have that clean bill of health and makes a run for the president, I think he's going to bring some interesting ideas and discussions to the table. John Caldera, Independence Institute head, joins us tonight. Of course, the the politically correct, we wish him the best because you have to say that, and we also mean it. I'm exactly the same age. I worry about these things as well. I get tired of this whole, I'll decide if I'm running for president. We all know you're running for president. You should have said, I am running for president. Now I've got to take care of this. But it does add for a little bit of drama. The media likes drama. This will be a, a good plus for him. I think he'll get a clean bill of health. And then we'll have two Coloradans fighting it out for, for the presidency. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Eric Sonderman, political political pundit. What do you think of Bennett's announcement? Well, I agree, and uh, I'll be a little more sincere maybe than John and join Natasha, but I think we all, uh, on a personal level, and not just because it's politically wrote, uh, wish Michael... That's uh, just insulting. <laughs> wish, wish, wish Michael Bennett uh, uh, the, very, the very best here. It's not something you wish upon, uh, upon anyone, but I think he has years and years and decades and decades ahead of him. Uh, I think, to John's point, I think he did announce that he is running for president, assuming the surgery goes well and he gets a clean bill of health. I think he has an interesting voice. I mean, he's a long shot of a long shot candidate. But I think he has an interesting voice, sort of an institutional voice, almost an Obama-esque voice, in terms of what he potentially can bring to this race. And he might get his moment. We see uh, the former mayor of South Bend, Pete Buttigieg, uh, certainly getting a moment now. I'm not sure Buttigieg is going to be the nominee. I'm not sure Bennett's going to be the nominee. I think he will have his moment in the sun and a moment where people pay attention. Very impressive pronouncing that name. And joining us, batting cleanup, Ed C. Lubber, hardest working journalist in town from the Denver Business Journal. Well, I'll tell you this. I'm not going to be working as hard as Michael Bennett would be working to come back from cancer surgery and then run for president. Look, this is going to be a really tough run. It was already, uh, as Eric mentioned, a really long shot run for a guy who hasn't made a lot of headlines in the Senate. Um, now he's going to be doing this on not a full clean bill of health. I think we all want to see this uh, this guy recover um, to to be healthy to be cancer free, um, but uh, but this just seems like a tough road ahead to recover and immediately go back out on a campaign trail where you've got to make up a lot of ground on people with more name recognition. I just hope he makes the right decision for his health and his family. Well, and we'll be talking about this more in the weeks to come. But right now, the long-awaited RTD G-Line train is finally taking off on April 26th after a two-and-a-half-year wait due to timing issues with the crossing gates. The line will have eight stops between Union Station and Ward Road in Wheat Ridge. 
Meanwhile, residents along the A-Line, which took off three years ago, are concerned about noise. Natasha, what do you make of these? Well, I think if you're planning to use the G-Line to commute or if you're going to use live next to the, R- the A-Line, you shouldn't get rid of your downtown barking pass or your earplugs. <laughs> They're going to be necessary potentially for a long time. Uh, you know, delays are going to happen with projects this big. When you dream this big, it's an important connection um, putting West Denver coming into to Union Station. You know, as we're looking at opening day for the Rockies, I mean, this is the type of thing that really makes a city more vibrant as we connect every part of it together. Um, what's interesting is, though, that no, there is no fast tracks. There is no building any of these lines quickly anymore, and I think that's a lesson going forward. You know, we still have more lines planned out. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people in the Denver metro who wish they were connected by a commuter rail line. Um, so this is something that is going to be continuing to be a long process for putting together all parts of the metro. And John, as a former RTD board member, I'm guessing you have some opinions on this. A former RTD board chairman, I ran the campaign against uh, Guide the Ride back in 1997 and, of course, a silly fast tracks proposal. And we're getting exactly what the Independence Institute's uh, Randall O'Toole predicted. It's twice over budget. It is massively underfunded. It is more dangerous than ever. It has killed people because they've had to put in uh, at-grade crossings to save, save money. And more importantly, and sadly, the mark of fast tracks on the city is endless traffic. When you take $7 billion out of the tax pool to put towards a, a project that carries not even 1% of the traveling public, it's no wonder. When you look at fast tracks, do not look at the pretty train as it goes by. Look at the tracks when nothing's on it. That is the waste of fast tracks. It's like looking at a lane of traffic that you're not allowed to drive on. $7 billion of transportation money could have solved lots of infrastructure problems in this in the city and as soon as the bonding is done on all this stuff you're going to see the rewinding of this in the future as autonomous vehicles need more bus lanes and more smart lanes it's sad to see Denver and uh, getting conned to buy a hundred year old technology that's already out of date. Eric opinions on G-Line starting up finally? Speaking of technology, I'm befuddled by RTD's difficulties with the crossing technology. I mean, last I looked, trains were not exactly new technology. We had trains before we had uh, automobiles, and and we've had railroad crossings forever. And yes, I understand this is all automated and high-tech and computerized, but there ought to be a way that you can get this technology so it is not as tricky as it apparently is for RTD, which has caused the endless crossing guards, uh, make-work projects along the A-line, and the endless delays now on the G-line. RTD is never going to win, at least that I've seen lately, a good neighbor award, particularly when if you live anywhere near uh, any of these lines. I do think, uh, you know, a thriving metropolis probably needs rail as part of its transit solution. John's point is not lost on me that it is a zero-sum game, and if you're spending the money here, you're not spending uh, the money here. I'm not necessarily opposed to rail, but by God, RTD has not covered itself in glory in how it has uh, carried forth uh, these projects. Ed, when the G-Line finally gets running, will it have a smoother ride than the A-Line has so far? I suspect. Uh, let's not forget, RTD is piloting some first-in-the-nation technology with, uh, with this wireless technology it's using. Uh, and, and let's not forget, the, the big problem with the rail line crossings now is not that they're coming up too early and putting lives in danger. They're coming up, to, you know, they, or they're, they're 
coming down too early, which means people just have to wait a little longer on these things. Um, I, I think RTD is going to get this figured out. Um, it's taken longer than anyone would have wanted, absolutely. Um, but I think this is an important moment to have this line open, too. I mean, you've got some really big economic possibilities here. Arvada is building a downtown uh, that is vibrant, that is safe, which is not what you can say about all of downtown Denver anymore, uh, and should really be able to attract people to it if they have an easy form of transportation to get out there. And meanwhile, you have Wheat Ridge, which is actually building around its stop, uh, a, a primary office park to house outdoor recreation companies, which could give a suburb a big shot of uh, primary employment and frankly cut down on some of the traffic that's going into the city, whether people use the, um, the rail line or not. So I think this is a good moment. Yeah, it's been a long time getting here, two years longer than we expected. Um, but at least at this moment, I think there's some benefits to this. All right. Well, right now, the Senate moved to accept the amendments placed on the oil and gas regulations bill and then repassed the bill on a 19 to 16 vote. This concludes weeks of debate over public health and safety concerns. Governor Jared Polis is expected to sign the bill into law. What do you see coming out of this, John? I see a recall in Greeley, Colorado. Uh, you'll see that Rochelle Galindo, who has voted against her constituents on this, this is going to wipe out a lot of economic development, particularly in Weld County. Ninety percent of oil in Colorado and gas comes from Weld County. Uh, it would be like the state representative uh, who has Aspen and Vail voting against the skiing industry. Uh, people are upset. And unlike the gun confiscation bill or the sex ed bill, this is about jobs and food on the table. 181 will be the signature bill uh, that comes out of the state legislature and what it could do for this, this economy. I, I know in the, the Boulder Denver bubble, people don't seem to get how uh, big oil and gas is and how devastating this uh, bill would be. This, is, this bill is proof that the Boulder Mafia is running the state capitol. This is a pure Boulder bill. Eric, Boulder Mafia in charge of the state? Uh, I don't know about the mafia piece, but Boulder is certainly not without its influence in the state at this moment. I personally think the legislature had no choice here after the voters of Colorado so resoundingly expressed their support <laughs> for the contents of uh, Senate Bill 181 uh, in the last election. What was the, what was the ten, number? One, ten percent uh, victory. Uh, or, or you mean that the, it went down? Oh, excuse right. me. Uh, uh, yeah, this clearly goes against um, the voters' expressed wishes in uh, Proposition 112. Obviously, uh, representative democracy is representative democracy. We elected a governor who promotes this agenda and uh, a legislature that is completely bought into this agenda. Uh, I'm more focused on the totality of the Democrats' agenda this year. Yes, the death penalty repeal is not going to be part of it, but this is anything but a shy or timid legislature. This is a legislature that looks to me like they're convinced this is a blue state in perpetuity, that they can beat down recalls, that they can hold their majority, that Governor Polis is safe as long as he wants to be governor. And by God, they're going whole hog on the agenda, and this is one piece of it. Ed, you have been in the belly of the beast. Where do you see this going now? I see that this is just beginning at this point. I mean, we first of all, uh, once Governor Polis signs this into law, and we don't know yet whether he's going to do a public signing or a private signing like he did with the National Popular Vote Bill, um, 
there's going to be about a year worth of rulemaking to take the principles in this bill and put them into effect while we have a backlog of 6,500 applications for drilling permits across the state that the newly remade Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission is going to have to consider under new rules uh, while local governments are looking at their new powers with it. So we've got a lot of uncertainty there to start. Uh, John mentioned the Rochelle Galindo recall, but let's not forget there are four ballot initiatives that could go on to the ballot in November because they have Tabor impacts uh, that are looking to essentially pull this rule out. The, the, the petition process started before this was even signed into law uh, and replace the Colorado oil and gas oil, the COGCC uh, with a more industry friendly body as well. So voters will literally have the chance to weigh in on what they think of this. And I think only then are we going to find out, is this the way the state wanted to go? Uh, I maintain uh, a lot of the 2018 election was more of a I hate Trump result and people going district by district saying, I prefer the ideas of this state house candidate to the ideas of this state house candidate. And I don't know that voters knew that something like this was coming. I think around areas like Adams County, Broomfield County, where you're seeing more development of oil and gas wells, this may be welcomed. But that's a small sliver of the state in terms of the general area. I think, uh, so yeah, like I said, this is just the beginning. We're going to be debating this for a long time. Natasha, are we being set up for a very ugly November? Yes, we are. And I'm going to echo that this is going to continue on for a very long time. What's interesting is oil and gas is not a, an immature industry. It is a very mature part of our economy. What has changed, what has created in perfect storm is, of course, an overused phrase, but this perfect storm of an increase in, in applications for permits and, and just activity around this industry combined with this massive influx of people that we've had in, into this state has created interesting con- conversations. Some of those have been a little bit more in-depth already in communities that were highly impacted, Broomfield, Weld County. Um, but yes, now the entire state is going to be having those conversations. I don't see it ending in November, though. I think it's going to continue for much longer. Especially at this table. Colorado Democrats and Republicans reached an agreement on Thursday to allocate $300 million for transportation from the state budget. Democratic Representative Chris Hansen says he feels that they can get to $300 million without sacrificing investments made in education. Eric, is that possible? We'll see. I mean, this was just a statement of intent, as best I read it. And the the key number was not the three hundred million. The key number was the seventy million that they added to what they had already set aside for transportation. Uh, The Senate wanted to do more, somewhere north of a hundred million. Casey Becker in the House did not want that number. They settled on seventy million and basically instructed the JBC to quote, "Go find it in the couch cushions." Uh, You know, if the state is sitting on seventy million dollars of loose change and nickel and dimes and couch cushions, then perhaps there's an, an, another discussion uh, that we should be having here and elsewhere. So this is a statement of intent. It is a constant balancing act between the Democrats' desire to put every possible dime to CEA and to education uh, and obviously the demands of a transportation network that is grossly underfunded in this state. Uh, we'll see where they find the $70 million. I assume they will find it somewhere. And the fact that they can find it uh, somewhere might indicate, um, might be indicative to some voters of this state as to how tightly this thing is being run. 
Ed, you've been over there. Was there 70 million, much less 300 million in those couches? Well, that was the parlor game we were playing today is where exactly are they going to find this money? There's some thought, well, this is a big Republican push for transportation, so they're going to take it out of a Republican favoring program, maybe cut down 70 million on the Department of Corrections budget, for example. Uh, there's some thought that uh, a lot of the health care programs that Governor Polson particular is trying to push through this year are going to require uh, federal waivers and that maybe you can just put them off a year uh, because, you know, not going to get those federal waivers too easily from the Donald Trump administration to begin with. But, but these are the kind of discussions that are being had. I mean, I don't think either of those is either uh, going to be the whole or even uh, an uncontested solution. Uh, but I don't know where 70 million is coming from. I, I didn't write the budget, admittedly. Um, but the other thing to consider is this. This is 70 million. It's 300 million overall, but 70 million that we're fighting over here uh, that, was, uh, that was put to a transportation infrastructure unfunded backlog of 7.1 billion right, right now. Uh, and so, great. Now you've gotten that down, even with 300 million, from 7.1 billion to 6.8 billion. And we had enough of a fight over that much. Where is the long-term solution going to come from here in the road funding. Casey Becker's forward a bill uh, to ask to de-bruce the state government and keep uh, all the money coming in over the Tabor cap for infinity uh, and put it between higher ed K-12 and transportation. But that's not a completely stable source, and that's going to slowly get that transportation infrastructure backlog down. Uh, Not to sound like we just had the conversation about oil and gas, but this is just the start. And if it's not just the start, that road system is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Are we at another collision course here, Natasha? Yes, and to expand it beyond just the, the state budget. I mean, transportation has been sort of this buzzword. I mean, as a reporter, I have to ask a pretty much every political candidate on every level of race about this right now. And that means that those conversations range from electric scooters to potholes to, to transit lines to roads. Those things are not the same, and the way that we handle them are not the same. And I'm not sure that we can spend our way out of any of those problems. And that's what's going to really come down to um, with the conversation is going to start to come down to because much like education where when you talk generally about it people say yeah we support kids but then when you get to the ballot box when we get to questions of what we're actually going to fund it becomes a much more complicated issue and with transportation the broad term I think that's what we're going to come come to a point on and specifically for the state budget that's going to be the question of which projects get funded and that's going to be a fight. John you've always supported spending your way out of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) The bail money has helped, yes. Um, transportation, particularly roads, that is a fundamental job of our state budget. While one out of every four Coloradans is now on Obamacare, which is not a fundamental role of state government, we've seen transportation funding, road funding, flatline for over a decade. The reason is a structural one. We used to have something called Senate Bill 1, which took money and put it into the uh, road funding. Uh, that's been changed, so now we have to have these, these uh, debates. But everything else has grown in the budget. Everything has grown except for road funding. The other thing that hurts is that road funding that is there is being siphoned off for yet more transit. So at least 10 to 15 percent of this goes to transit across the state so we can build more bike lanes and uh, open spaces that affect transportation. Um, the legislature needs to make a decision. Are they willing to fund this fundamental Um, uh, role of government. My suspicion is they want to wait for another tax increase because it's a good thing to hold people hostage to. You can hold kids hostage with education. You can hold roads hostage for every commuter. That's a lot easier than saying let's uh, have an honest debate about um, Obamacare 
which is driving the budget because people will not vote for a tax increase for that. Well, and we just have some time for this one. Mm. Representative Ken Buck is the new leader of the Colorado Republican Party after his victory in the fourth round of voting. Buck stated, we will hold our heads proud and high as we, left, as we let the world know this is not a blue state. Uh, do you think, Ed, there's any chance that we're not a blue state and that Ken Buck's going to turn this around for the Republicans? Absolutely. I, I do think there's a chance we're not a blue state. I think a lot of people still refer to us as a purple state. And I think uh, in a year in which Donald Trump is not the standard bearer for the Republican Party, suburban voters in particular are going to look more favorably upon the Republican Party. Now, is Ken Buck the guy to turn around? He is a big name. He will probably help with fundraising. He's not going to go after the moderate candidates that Republicans may need to win back some of these swing state houses districts. So it's yet to be seen what his influence will be in 2020, but clearly Republicans wanted the big name and they got him for that. A sitting congressman, Natasha, can he turn things around? Um, possibly. It's important to note, too, though, that he has a pretty fierce competitor on the other side. Last month, the Democrats reelected Morgan Carroll into that position. She's coming off of major wins. Um, plus, she's someone who's, who's quite familiar with the way campaigning in Colorado can go both poorly and well. Um, so that'll be interesting. But neither of them represent a huge portion of Colorado voters, the independents. And, of course, an independents are not going to have a party chair, but they're the ones who will decide um, a big chunk of the next elections. John, you've always had interesting opinions on the Colorado Republican yeah. Party. You know, so Ken says we're not a blue state. I've been friends with Ken for a long time. I had no idea he was colorblind. This <laughs> is a blue state. He will have a, a positive impact on the party. He will bring more money in. He'll bring in good management. Uh, but that's just one small slice of this. We keep talking about party politics as if they really matter. They have a role to play in the entire infrastructure of politics in which the left dominates in this state and which conservatives still think that politicians, not institutions, make the difference. Eric, can the Republicans make a comeback? It's going to be a long road, and they first have to decide they want to travel that road, that they, the real agenda is to win elections and be a governing party and win elections in November and not just conduct holy war in primary season. Uh, I think the Republican motto for so long in the state has been, or maybe it's not a motto, it's a, it's a strategy in a card game. You double down, and then you double down, and then you double down again. And they always double down on just reinforcing and reinvigorating that base. The base is not a governing base in this state. It hasn't been for a number of years. Uh, and the party first has to do a psychological shift and say, we're ready to broaden the tent somewhat and understand that elections are well, won in the center. Allowing, we're not allowing women in, whatever you're saying. Let's make that clear. Exactly. Well, that's going to really solve the problems for the Republicans. All right, we've come to our favorite time of the show. The disgrace of the week, Natasha, I'm sure you've got a good one. Well, given that this is a week where we acknowledge that women don't earn as much as men for equal um, payday, there were some interesting comments made at the Capitol. I'm actually not going to repeat them here. I'm just going to raise attention to the, the, the discrepancy that occurs in our workplaces. Well, that was very gentle. John? Let me take the opposite tack, of course. My disgrace would be the Republicans who voted for a resolution calling for uh, micromanaging in the economy on so-called pay equity. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that at least three Republicans have enough economic sense to, uh, to, to say we're not falling for that identity politics trap today. Eric? 
Whatever you make of the debate of uh, traditional fossil fuel energy versus renewable energy, I don't think there is any evidence that I've seen that wind turbines cause cancer, contrary to the President of the United States. And Ed. The anti-fracking activists who forced the post-brewing company to can, uh, and I mean eliminate, their Hickenlooper ale beer because they didn't like Hickenlooper's stance on fossil fuels. This is really indicative of where the political debate in this country has gotten to. Not, hmm, I like the guy being honored because he was one of the fathers of Colorado brewing, but if you favor somebody who I don't favor, I'm going to protest you. And you wonder why there's no compromise at the Capitol. And let me double down on that with the people who've been pro the yes on 300 people who've been protesting at local restaurants who really don't have a whole lot of choice in what they're doing right now. So now let's get to something nice. Natasha. Yeah, I had the opportunity to go to the women's, um, U.S. Women's National Team um, game yesterday when they played against Australia. Um, pretty phenomenal match. Uh, just, uh, you know, kind of the opposite of what I was talking about a minute ago. They've raised a lot of attention um, for equality in sports. Um, but beyond that, just an incredible game, just incredible athletes. I, I watch a lot of sports. I attend a lot of sporting events and in Colorado, and this one in particular just had a spirit and energy that was um, really, really enjoyable. That's great. John, be nice. I, I never thought I'd say something nice about Vice President Joe Biden, but I am, in that as a uh, uh, relic of, a, of, of an age where, as Ed put it, people would work together and more collegiately and actually talk to the other side, Joe Biden was one of those. And now, because of a kiss on the back of the head, I think he's going to get ripped apart. Eric. Hey, it's a good day here in Denver. It's opening day for the Rockies. The Avalanche made the playoffs again for the second year in a row. And uh, happy 33rd anniversary to my wife, Tracy. And Ed. I'm going to follow Eric on the Rockies theme here, but I want to especially shout out DJ Johnson, who is on the opening yeah. day roster. This is a guy who toiled in the low independent minors for years, making 1200 a week and working in a lumber yard in the offseason to support his family. Now he gets a stand with the rest of the team. It's a pretty cool honor for him. No, it's great. Hope springs eternal on opening day, and it's already out <laughs> wild outside there. That's all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everyone here at CPT12, I'm Patty Calhoun. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.